Father, I just want to echo that in, in a prayer. Uh, may it be so of me, may it be so of our congregation here. Your beloved, may our, all our days bring glory to your name, O oh God. So I pray that we might take seriously your word today. Uh, may you impress upon our hearts the urgency of the hour. And uh, may we not grow weary in well-doing, nor may we grow lazy in our attention to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But I pray, O oh Father, as we understand that the, uh, the hour of your return is coming, I pray, Father, that we might, in like manner, uh, sense that urgency of life and the peril of those around us and take stock of our own heart and be certain, O oh God, that we are in good space with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the God of all glory. We thank you for your good news and we pray, O oh God, that it might shape our lives today and throughout this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if I were a town crier, I think I would come here this morning and say, Oye, oye, Madame and Messieurs, friends of this festive occasion, there is a day coming for our Lord. And, and I, I, I am a town crier, I'm a herald this morning of good news from the King of Kings who wants you to know that he is encouraging your heart with the truth that Christ is coming again as he has promised and he will come soon. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14? Uh, because in that text, this is what the King of Kings is saying to us this morning. A day is coming for our Lord. And uh, your translation probably says a day of the Lord is coming. But it is better translated, a day is coming for the Lord. In other words, the world has had its day and now a day is coming for our Lord. Zechariah chapter 14. When your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out. And fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. With half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be no light, no cold, or frost. It will be a unique day, without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, 
There will be one Lord and his name the only name. And at that name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. I know it's not in your text. I'm not adding to the Bible. I'm borrowing from another place and inserting it here because that's what Paul gathered his thoughts from. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah, but Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the Benjamin gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses. It will, it will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another, and they will attack each other. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. And then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague He inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, by the way, talking here about the supreme importance to God of worship. And the, the Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned three times. It is a time of commemorating God as creator, provider, and redeemer. Uh, this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and on the cooking pots. And the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite or anybody, uh, a merchant, hawking religion for um, illegitimate gain... In the house of the Lord Almighty. This is the word of God to us. So here we are at the end of our series in Zechariah 14. We've been building to this, this great climax at this last chapter of Zechariah. And it's supposed to be, of course, the apex of our hope as God's people. We read this text together. It's, it's supposed to, to, to forge together our common belief that, that knits us together in glorious unity and and uh, like so many other spectacular things about the Lord, humans get in the way. And we tinker around and we find a way to be at odds over the awesomeness of Christ. And uh, we divide into hundreds of fragments based on our con the convictions of our heritage or the con constructs of humans or whatever we have read in a commentary and... And uh, it's sad that a great text like this, as so many prophetic texts and texts that talk about the glory of the coming of Christ, divide us. 
instead of unifying us. And it seems to me that um, it, it's a frustration that I continue to, to have. And I just wanted to give you a quick un- understanding of, of how I look at these things so you understand, um, you know, we, we, we love to talk about our categories and who we are. You know, we're Reformed or we're Fundamentalists or we're Evangelicals, we're Baptists or Presbyterians, United or we're Calvinists or we're Arminians or we're pre-tribulational or we're post-tribulation, we're all millennial, we're this and we're that and we're whatever. And, and we grow these ideas often out of a text like this when what Jesus wants for us is to be filled with hope. The king has stated to us that he's coming back for us. And so as we look at this, I want to dissect it a little bit, but I don't want to divide us. I I want us to to look at the text and take the text at face value as best we can. You know, in in the game of football, um, there's a a, basic um, axiom of how football plays are decided. And and, uh, and, um, basically the call on the field takes priority... Uh, unless the video replay presents uh, inconvertible evidence or incontrovertible evidence that the play or the call should be overturned. And quite honestly, we need to understand that our human constructs and our heritage of convictions and our commentaries are not inspired. The Word of God is inspired. And so as we take God's Word seriously, I want, to, I want us to consider that Zechariah 14 as the call on the field. What's the call on the field? And we'll be certain to accept the fact that there might be some video replay that, that provides incontrovertible evidence that, that we should look here a little closer or look there a little closer and try and discuss what it is. But, but let's join together today and, and try and wrestle with the text and see what it says to us. And, and, and I want to remind all of us that prophecy is not given to us so that we can have an intellectual exercise and go home and say, aren't we a lot smarter today? Uh, Prophecy is given to us that our lives might change. Uh, Prophecy uh, should lead to to present reality in how we live. We ought to live in light of what God has promised us. That's that's the purpose of prophecy. And I want to get there this morning because... We could get bogged down for a long time on discussing all kinds of eschatological um, ideas and, and uh, um, um, different um, uh, journeys in that whole area. And I don't want us to get lost there, but I do want us to take God's word seriously. And, and one of the first things that's always asked about anything like this, about end times events, is when? When? I mean, was that the thing the disciples said to Jesus when he started talking about end times things? They said, when is this going to happen, Lord? We always want to know when. And, um, you know, every orthodox evangelical, to my knowledge, agrees that there is a victorious return of Christ. Can we get a, can we get a testimony in here this morning? Like, are we agreeing together that there is a victorious coming of Christ? We have that common ground, do we not? And that's wonderful. You know, we're starting out already in the right track. Every orthodox that I understand believes that. But where there is a divergence of agreement always happens 
when we start to talk about a future for Israel. And so when you grab a text like this and you start to take it apart, it, it, you know, you can't escape the, the look at the text and ask the question, well, what about Israel? And so we're going we're gonna to look at, before we get to some practical implications this morning, because I know your eyes will glaze over pretty soon, and when, when I see them glazing over like they did last Sunday, you're saying, like, this stuff, like, seriously, Rick, we, like, we don't come for a lecture and a lesson and, 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 a, and a seminary uh, class. We come for some, some charge in our hearts. So, so I'm going to get there, because that's what prophecy's for. But we do need to look at the text and have something to base our, our, uh, our practical understanding. So um, does Zechariah contribute anything to that debate? What debate? A future for Israel. That, that's the debate that, that kind of uh, causes us some consternation in our eschatological um, uh, journeys. So let, let me just give you a few commentaries from some of the uh, church fathers or the early church commentators as they commentated on this text. And, and many um, uh, modern-day teacher, professor, will still hold to the, some of these ancient interpretations and commentaries. But let me just take, for instance, Eusebius of Caesarea, who walked this earth in 265, he's a Greek, watched, walked this earth 265 to 340 AD, and here's what he said about this text. The fulfillment of this also agrees with the passages quoted on the destruction of the whole Jewish race. I want you to listen to every word. Which came on them after the coming of Christ. Now that's a pretty absolute statement. For Zechariah writes this prophecy after the return from Babylon, foretelling the final siege of the people by the Romans, through which the whole Jewish race was to become subject to their enemies. Now, keep in mind, he's writing in the era of Rome, Roman domination still. Politics regularly colors our interpretation of prophecy. He talks about the destruction of the whole Jewish race as prophesied here in Zechariah 14. Now, we're living 2,000 years later. There's lots of Jews around. Then we come to Ephraim the Syrian, who lived in Asia Minor, modern uh, Turkey, in the era of 306 to 373 AD, and he writes this about this text. It is clear. <laughs> it was interesting when, when you write that. <clears throat> I'm going to try to avoid preaching that way this morning. It is obvious. It is clear. If you have any mind at all, you will see this, because it isn't as clear as, as we sometimes like to think. But he writes, it is clear that the passage refers to the glorious time of the Maccabees. Now, the Maccabees was before Christ. The things which you see here to be foreshadowed were fulfilled and perfected by Christ. In other words, Zechariah 14 is entirely dealt with at Calvary. Now, let's take, take Kenneth L. Barker, for instance, Ph.D., uh, modern, modern writer, 1985. He writes about this text, The ultimate goal of all history is the Lord's personal appearance and reign. But before the literal and full manifestation of his kingdom, the earth must experience the throes of birth pangs, 
there is a return to the refining process of 13, 8 to 9, as the nations gather at Jerusalem and ravish her. In other words, this modern commentator says, Zechariah 14, in its fullest sense, has not yet been completed. Now, so we ask the question of, of old interpreters, a new interpreter, um, does the cross and shortly thereafter fully exhaust the events portrayed in Zechariah 14? Now, there can be no question in our minds as we read some of this stuff that we realize that in, in a variety of ways, Jesus, at his first advent, at the time of uh, in Calvary, um, connected himself to many of these things. It's not a surprise to any of us that he came from Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives and made the trek into Jerusalem in many ways to uh, connect with these prophecies. We also know that the angels stood with the disciples as Jesus was ascending to heaven saying, you know, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you will in likewise, in like manner, uh, return in the sa same way. So, so you have this Mount of Olives connection, but the angel themselves said there is yet another connection that has not been fulfilled which I think is picked up here very nice in Zechariah. So I would submit to you that unlike Eusebius and Ephraim, uh, the cross of Calvary and shortly thereafter has not fulfilled all that is written here in this particular text of Zechariah. We have the benefit of 2,000 years more of history. There's certainly more than just the Romans. We all know. Italy is not laying siege to Jerusalem. But we can see Persia... The Iranians are saber-rattling right now, parading their armies in front of the living God, saying, we will absolutely wipe out Israel. And I, uh, when, I, when I saw that in the news, I, started, I actually laughed. I actually laughed to myself that there would be the audacity of any nation in this world that would shake its fist at the living God with their puny little army marching down some parade in front of the leader, saying, this is the instrument that will take care of God's prophecy. Hardly. So, let's take a look here at some of the sight lines beyond Calvary. But before we do that, uh, what, what is it in, for me that, that really um, establishes my commitment to the idea that God still has something in, in uh, his plans for Israel? And, and uh, I'll tell you the one biggie for me is this. Israel. That Israel actually still exists is quite frankly miraculous. If you've been paying attention to the neighborhood they live in, century upon century, with an avowed hatred for Israel all around them and a desire to wipe them out over all of these centuries, and yet there they are standing to this day. The only thing that makes any sense to me at all is, is that... Um, uh, uh, is. In, in terms of why Israel exists is the fulfillment of prophecy. That's why it's still hanging around. For me, the ruling on the field, according to scriptures, is Israel. And geopolitical realities all around us, being the video replay, uh, to me provides incontrovertible evidence that it's about Israel. The end is about Israel. 
And I look at the text here, and it says here in verse 2, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. All the nations, not just Rome, all the nations. When, tell me, beloved, was that fulfilled? So look at some of these sight lines that I see beyond Calvary, for instance. You know, if not Israel, who? You know, if, if the end is not about Israel, who is it about? Is it about the church? Well, think about that. Think about this for a minute. Is all that we're talking about here, you know, people standing and having their, their eyes, the flesh of their eyes wrought out, is, is this some sort of cosmic spat between uh, Christ as the bridegroom and his bride, the church? Does that make any sense to anybody that the end would be some, some marriage breakup between the Lord and his bride? I mean, the end times are a time of judgment and a time of salvation, not a time of sanctification. It's a time of separating those who would not bow their knee to the king from those who will, who will respond to his offer of salvation to the people of Israel. And why is the emphasis on Jerusalem? What does that have to do with the church 2,000 years or 3,000 years or 4,000 years from now? I don't know. What does Jerusalem have to do? Why would, it, why would it concentrate on Jerusalem? If not, but to point to Israel. And then there's all these cosmic changes that didn't happen at Calvary. There are certainly connections, but nothing to the extent of anything that happened here. Look at the topographical changes that are described here. He will set his foot on the Mount of Olives... And the Mount of Olives will split. Now, the Mount of Olives is a, mount, a, a, a mountain range. We wouldn't call it mountains if you went to the Rockies or you went to the, the mountains by our standards. But it's, it's, a, it's a hill, a pretty big hill. And, and it's called the Mount of Olives. It's the east side of Jerusalem. It says here that, that when the Lord comes, he will touch his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will split right down the middle. And uh, one half will separate to the south, one half will separate to the north, and there will be a great valley for people to escape from this great battle. Now tell me, when did that happen? It has not. We, we have um, Jerusalem here, it says in, in verse 10, uh, but Jerusalem will be raised up. Now I've heard some really interesting allegory and metaphor descriptions of what this means. It means that the word of God will be lifted up and held up. It says in my Bible, Jerusalem will be lifted up. A city. Topographically, Jerusalem will be lifted up. Look at it. If he can split Mount of Olives and make a valley, he can raise Jerusalem up. And it says that the surrounding land will be actually lowered. The Mount of Olives will be lowered so that Jerusalem will be the apex because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will rule there and it will be in the sight lines of all. This is a great text for us. And, and then you've got all kinds of things like no daytime, no nighttime. Yes, it went dark in the middle of the day at Calvary, but for three hours. You've got here climate unchange. You haven't got global warming. You haven't got global freezing here. It says that there'll be no cold, no frost. It's going to be nice. Okay? Uh, on a day like today, can you get interested in no cold, no frost? I could get interested in that. Oh, Lord Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, you know. And, and then there's, there's an abundant water supply here, it says. New drainage directions. And yes, Jesus said he was the living water. Of course, all of these connections are to Jesus. First advent, second advent. That's what you have here. So I can see that your eyes are starting to glaze over and you're just staring at me. 
So it's time to get practical. Themes and lessons for the church. You know, in light of God's intended ideal. You know, what, what we've read here, what we see here, we could, we could spend lots of time here, but, but um, I, I don't want to neglect the opportunity at the end of this series to put some pra- lay down some practical um, uh, calls to life change as a prequel to our discipleship series. This is a beautiful merger for us. This, this will move us right into a really nice place for our discipleship because prophecy should motivate life change. Prophecy must motivate life change. And so um, let's look at what, what we've got here. I, I um, you know, there's, there's uh, lots of incredible stuff going on, but I, wanted, I want you to notice here in this block of verses, verses 1 to 9, I want you to notice in this block that you have the day coming for the Lord is all about his dominant kingship and rule. All right? These verses that culminate at verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. I don't know what you're looking at today, and I'm sure that you, as you look around and you see all the way things are, and you're wondering what in the world is going to happen, I'm telling you this is how history is going to, is going to wind up. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. Where is history going? That's where it's going. What isn't obvious or is intentionally neglected or ignored by your neighbors and your co-workers and maybe some people in your family. And there are implications to this promise to us. Implications about those who are lost and implications to those who are the beloved of the Lord who are gathered here this morning. And there's a mixture here today. What it means is this rule, his rule as king over the whole earth... The implication practically means that he should be king over your whole life. That's, you know, if we want to understand what is the ideal with which history is moving and where the living God is taking us, and we want to understand that prophecy should change our lives today, and we know that that God ultimately is taking to ultimate kingship and ultimate rulership, then God's people should be evidence of where prophecy is going. Our lives should live out radical loyalty to the living Christ every single day of our lives. That's what this is to teach us. The world has had its day. It's now time for the Lord's day. And it's time for the Lord's day in your life. It's time for you to set aside those things that are in the way of your total loyalty to Christ at this start of the year and commit yourself to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the coming king who will be victorious. Jesus, what this teaches us in this text is you and I need to get in on where history is heading. A comprehensive global takeover. And for us, that's glorious. You know, as you look around and day after day and you, re- you hear the, what's going on in the news or it comes over your, your social media and you're like, what in the world is going on? You're reading at the horrible, savage things that people are doing. And you look heaven where you say, oh God, what in the world is happening? How how is it, how could it get any worse? And then the next day it's worse. People do something worse. And and we're left wondering. And it's important for God's people not to become discouraged or desperate like those people around us. Because we know where history is going. It's going to a great victorious conclusion. 
And, and we realize in this text, as we see what, what is happening when the Lord returns, that Jesus changes everything. That's the great lesson for our lives. Jesus changes politics. Jesus changes topography. Jesus changes the cosmic world. Jesus changes international affairs. Jesus changes religious affairs. Jesus, beloved, changes everything. He will change it all when he arrives, and he should be changing everything in our lives, even today. That's the evidence, in my mind, of Christian legitimacy, that Jesus is changing your life. That should be happening. Not moral reform, but Holy Spirit transformation. Uh, what whole-scale obedience to God really looks like. The divine rule and reign of Christ in our lives where we say yes to Christ and no to ungodliness. That's true Christianity, beloved. And, and I just want to say to you, if you don't want to obey Christ, you aren't a Christian. Now, I'm just telling you the truth. You know I tell you the truth. I try to tell you the truth. And this is an urgent message. This is an urgent message because, beloved, Jesus Christ could return before I finish this sermon and only those who are practicing the rule and reign of Christ in their hearts will be part of the eternal kingdom of the king of all the earth. And so it is absolutely imperative that one day God will say enough to all this human savagery. He will say enough to killing, enough to stealing, enough to raping, enough. And that's the end. And God will take back everything that he's entrusted to humans, uh, everything he's given us as stewardship over, the, stewardship over this earth. He will take it back and be entirely in charge of it. He will take back the creation mandate and will make the earth good again. We're going to be wearing baseball hats called Mega, M-E-G-A, make earth good again. Because that's who we are. That, that's, that's who we follow. We follow the Lord of glory. And we'll be wearing mega hats. And that's what we're looking for. And that's what the promise is for all of us here. But there's a second aspect. The, the, the remaining 12 uh, verses talk about his place. So first of all, his rule. He's king over all the earth. And the second part is his place is a recurring theme that runs throughout prophecy and end-time prophecy, and that is judgment and the urgency of purifying repentance. That runs throughout all of prophecy. The reason that God wrote this to the people of the time of Zechariah in the first place was to call them to repentance. He said at the very start of, of this, uh, this prophecy, if you return to me, what? I will. Do you not remember what I said 14 weeks ago? or more, <laughs> what the Bible says, I will return to you. It's always been God's call out to his people. Purify, purify, repentance, repentance. The rule and reign of Christ, and make sure that you, you are living holy lives. Because after all, it says here that Jesus is coming up to clean up his place. Everything in these last 12 verses is about cleaning up his place. Anybody who won't Worship the living Christ is out. And everything that he touches, the cooking pots, the, the horses, everything that he touches is going to have inscribed on it, holy to the Lord. Because everything that Jesus touches, 
turns into something usable for him. And I want you all to know, beloved, that if you love Jesus Christ this morning, that's written on your heart, holy to the Lord. That's who you are, holy to the Lord. He, everything Jesus touches becomes usable to him. And so the call in the scriptures is, since you are holy to the Lord, how ought you to live? I want to point out to you a couple of texts in scripture. Uh, for, for instance, in, in Colossians uh, chapter 3, and um, verses 4 or 5 and 6, uh, it talks here about how we ought to live as followers of Jesus Christ. This idea to live holy and pure lives is not a new one. It's not one that only shows up in prophecy. It shows up throughout the scriptures. And in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 5, it says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I want you to see how uh, Paul has framed these verses. If you look back at verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, Paul's saying, why should we want to live this way? Because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming again to get those ones who have on their foreheads and have on their hearts holy to the Lord and are living out that holiness by the strength of the Holy Spirit and the transforming work that he's doing in our lives. And then Peter picks up on the same idea in 2 Peter chapter 3. Because people are looking and saying, you know, where is this promise coming? You know, what's with, what's with Jesus? He promised to come back. When is he coming back? And, and Peter says, listen, uh, he's, you know, he's not slow in fulfilling his promise. The reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he is patient and long-suffering. And he is not willing that any should perish. Listen, beloved. This is a tremendous day of grace. Right now, this very day is a day of grace, the day of God's grace to you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your grace day. This, this is a day where God has extended his mercy to this whole world, and they're hearing the gospel all across the world this day on Sunday, hearing the gospel message. One more day, one more day of, of offering your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ if you have not yet done that. One more opportunity to do that. And Peter uh, writes this in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come uh, like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home, of the, right, or the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. How ought we to live? We ought to be people of great hope fully embracing all that Christ has for us. And so his place is a recurring theme and an urgency of purity and all that is. Calvary describes to us the extent to which God was willing to go uh, to have sin removed. 
And, and Old Testament warfare is a precursor to us to see what God's ultimate judgment over the nations looks like. So you and I need to embrace the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So in light of what God is ultimately up to, I want to leave you with two, two thoughts this morning. Mark Boda, who's the Old Testament professor at Master Divinity School, makes a really practical connection in this text, and I, I, I want to share it with you. He, he, he writes to this effect. I'm not quoting him, but he writes to this effect. There is a direct connection between your commitment to holy living and your passion for the glory of God to the nations, which all rests on your hope for the coming of the Lord. This is a vital takeaway from this text. When you are looking at this text and you see the rule of Christ and the call of Christ on our lives to live under that rule of Christ, and when you see the passion with which the living God has toward cleaning up his place and his passion for his glory to the nations and his offer to us of great hope because of these promises then we as his people choose to live holy lives prompted by the Holy Spirit that we might be and might have a desire to go on mission in Christ's name. There is a direct con connection. As circumstances beat you up around and culture deteriorates around you, the promise of the coming of the Lord invests your heart with hope and offers you and I contagious enthusiasm, contagious optimism, and we ought to model the rule of Christ in our life with unbridled joy. We ought to be the people who are not doomers and gloomers. Although we are living among social deterioration, we're living, uh, fixing our eyes on the hopelessness that's all around us. But we of all people, knowing that Christ has promised to put everything right, we ought to be living with contagious joy in, around the people that we are, are around. We ought, to, we ought to demonstrate the reality of Christianity in every possible way. We need to be people who are serially excited about Jesus Christ and all that he is offering us, what he is doing, what he can do, and what he will do and has promised to do. We ought to be people who in our lives are, are calling others to something worth living and dying for. We ought to be people who are... Um, demonstrate by our lives that we don't think our destiny is pointless, but we know that our destiny is glorious. We ought to be people who have something that's so real, so amazing, so right, that we ought to be bursting with gospel gossip every day of our lives so that we go viral wherever we are. That's who we ought to be. That's who we are challenged to be. And that is, the, and that is a, a living out of the rule of Christ in our lives. And the second part of this, as I leave with you, is the purifying of our lives. We ought to be fully cooperating with the purifying work of the Lord. Not only is a better way to live now, not only is a better way to live now, but it is the ground upon which the Lord readies and stirs your and my heart to be on mission in the world. You know, um, Boda actually talks a little bit more. Uh, he, um, he, he mentions some connections between what he has seen in various, um, various groups of God's people and, and how they were stirred by the Holy Spirit in, in the movement of holiness that actually mobilized them to mission. And, and you will see this in, in a variety of ways, whether it was with the Wesleys in their holy club 
or A.B. Simpson, the founder of Christian Missionary Alliance, who, by the way, was a Presbyterian pastor who got fired up by the Holy Spirit and said, hey, you know, when he got fired up by the Holy Spirit, he couldn't help but found a mission agency. The Christian Missionary Alliance was never meant to be a denomination. It was a mission agency founded on the holiness movement of A.B. Simpson. And the Azusa Street Revival that took place in California, where the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of people and moved, which, which was the beginning of the, the modern-day Pentecostal movement, was all about getting right with God, repenting, and, and, and having the Holy Spirit transform your life and change your life. And by the way, in all of those denominations, whether the Wesleyans or the, or the Christian Missionary Alliance or the Pentecostals, it moved them powerfully to mission, moving out throughout the world. And that's the legacy of the holiness movement. And, you know, I, I won't get into the fact that too much of the Baptist movement has been the wicked sister of holiness, legalism, and has stunted our mission. But the truth of the matter is, I so appreciate the purity and the repentance and the passionate heart for God that comes out of and grows out of the, our holiness movement, brothers and sisters, and what they have shown us. And this is very much what Zechariah is actually talking about here. It's critical. This is God's call to us to, to, as he readies us for his appearing. If you have no desire for mission, it's likely that you have a holiness problem. That's the bottom line to this. If you have no heart to reach people for Christ, it's likely that your heart is dirty right now. And you need to get it cleaned up by the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to do. And so, um, you know, our churches ought to be places, rather than us having to concentrate on, you know, how can we be user-friendly and how can we advertise and attract people to church. You know what we ought to be able to say? is, you know, you ought to come to our church and see what Jesus can do in a person's life. That ought to be what attracts people to us. It ought to be, you ought to come and see what it looks like when Christ is ruling a person's life and when, when holiness pervades through the work of the Holy Spirit and when Jesus changes everything. You ought to just come and see the product of what Jesus can do. That ought to be the great advertisement of the church. And so I call on us at the start of the year, Calvary Baptist Church, you know, we can't do anything else about all the other churches, what everybody else is doing, but we can do something about here. And I'm calling on us to get serious with the Holy Spirit in our lives and, and ask Him to make us holy. Ask Him to clean up our lives. Ask Him to teach us how to say no to ungodliness and yes to Jesus Christ. Ask him to help us to know what it is to live in joy under the rule and reign of Christ and to welcome the refining work of God in our hearts and our lives that it might vault us into mission and that this city might never be the same. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. And it's about his place and it's about his rule. And we know this. We're not in the dark. We've been told this. And on that day, there will be a final auditing of all hearts. And you're either all in or you're all out. It's not going to be this murky ambiguity we live with in the church over and over again, year after year after year, where we don't really know, are you really in or are you really out? Do you really love Jesus or do you not love Jesus? I, I, I 
I grow weary of people saying, well, I don't really know, I'm not really sure about their heart. I, you know, I don't really know, you know, they... Listen, when, when you know Jesus, we should be able to be ID'd by the lost and the saved. No matter where we are, where we work, at our home, in the sports, wherever we are, we ought to be ID'd. That person is living under the rule of Christ. That person is living a holy life in Christ. That ought to be evident. That person is living with great hope and joy of the coming of Christ. There should be no ambiguity among us. And I, I would urge us on the heels of this sermon, if your heart is in an ambiguous place, uh, you're not in good space. Uh, today is a day of grace and opportunity for you to, to, to reach out to the Lord and, and, and respond to what he is calling you to do. You know, it was in that day uh, of Zechariah, somewhat like the average church, um, there was a lot of ambivalence and a lot of disloyalty to God. And God was, re- was calling them to repent and turn fully to him. And he would return to them. He would draw near to them. As we close this series, you know, a Christ-exalting life should leave no doubt the wicked and the righteous alike should know this. I got to say that. And so as we close this series, I think it would be really inappropriate in the prophecy to just say, oh, that was really exciting, it's really neat, Jesus is coming again. But what about today? Because Jesus might come today. And the question that should be going on in your heart is, where is my heart? You know, I could, I could do what I've done on other occasions this morning. And I could say, you know, here this morning, I could say, look, how many of you can honestly testify this morning that you are all in for Jesus Christ? Would you put your hand up? And, and, and there, no, 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 don't put your hand up. <laughs> you, I know you want to, and I'm, I'm excited about that. Don't put your hand up. There's all kinds of social pressure when you ask something like that. You know, what, am I sitting in a church? I'm sitting here in Calvary. What am I going to do? Not put my hand up? Seriously. So that's why I'm not going to ask you to do that this morning. I'm going to ask you in a more serious way. If I, were to, if I were to ask that question this morning, you know, what, what's the real message of your heart? If I, I were to say to you this morning, are you all in for Jesus Christ? The rule and reign of Christ. Cooperating with the holiness work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, is your hand going to go up? Or in all honesty, you can't put your hand up. Because that's the message this morning. That's the urgency this morning. What, what would you be able to do? Because that tells the truth about your heart. And I am urging you this morning, because of the sure appearance of Christ, and not knowing when, this, this afternoon could be the appearance of Christ. I, I'm urging you to get serious with God concerning your heart. I'm asking you, as I asked the service before, not to leave this building with an ambiguous heart. Because at that day, ambiguous hearts are not in. You're all in, or you're all out. And if Christ is pulling your heart this morning, as he has many other times and you've resisted, I'm saying if, if today you are hearing the Lord, do not harden your heart. 
but respond to him. Our Father, all over uh, this room, the Holy Spirit is at work. And this is your work, this is not my work. The work of the heart is your work. I thank you for the privilege of delivering the truth. And I pray, O oh God, that we would be truthful people about the state of our heart. As, as our hearts are laid bare before you this morning. There's nothing, you're, you're not fooled by anything, Lord. You know, there, there are some people here who are absolutely all in for Christ. There are other people who've been playing spiritual games for years. So, may today be a day where hearts are settled firmly in you. As for me and my house, but as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. I, I'm going to embrace the rule of Christ. I'm going to embrace the Holy Spirit work in my life to change me. I, I'm going to set a course in this year. I'm going to I'm going to embrace and engage fully in the discipleship essentials that are, that are upon us. I want to be that certain kind of person, Lord. So, Father, I, I, I just invite people to respond to you in the privacy of their own heart. Yes or no, for Jesus' sake. The Word of God says, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. And we're excited about that. That's a glorious, glorious truth. You know, you haven't seen this with your own eyes, but we know this is to be true because we've been experiencing it. God has been saving people over the last couple of weeks in great and powerful ways. And we're really excited about what God is doing. Um, they haven't come down here and stood down here, but they've come and they've, they've uh, come to Christ in salvation. And so it's so exciting. And, and the Lord is building his church. And one of these days, the last person is coming in. And then the Father in heaven will say to the Son, go and get my bride. Go and get your bride. And so that's why a day like today is urgent. We're excited about what Christ is doing and that Christ is coming again, but... But today might be the last time you hear the gospel. And so I urge you this morning, if God is speaking to your heart, and you know you need to come to him in faith, then, then do so. Uh, pastors will be here. We'd love to, to help you in your journey to the Lord uh, this morning, right after the service. There'll be some people in our connections room. You can go there, uh, right by the door on the east side. Um, and uh, there'll be people there to talk to you as well. So either way, get it right with God, because Christ is coming again. Our Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, and we're excited about the truth. We are people filled with hope. We love that you are our King, and we love that you're cleaning up our lives. So Lord God, I pray that we would cooperate with everything that you're doing, and then be, be uh, energetic and enthusiastic about being on mission, oh God, because uh, there's coming... A day, and it says, as Peter said, let's speed it on as we get out there and, and reach people for Christ. So, Lord, make us right. Make us ready for what you want to do in our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.